Hello, everyone. It is uh, Wednesday, the 13th of September, God damn it, 2017, and this is the promotional malpractice live chat here on MMAfighting.com. I'm the host of this. My name is Luke Thomas. I very much appreciate you guys joining me here today. It's a rainy day in your nation's capital. Not that you care, but there you go. Uh, lots to get to today. There is, of course, a UFC 215 controversy still unresolved, I suppose. Um, John Jones's B sample came back positive, which not necessarily all that informative an update, but um, as one reader put it, closes one of the avenues of potential exoneration. Uh, and then you have UFC Pittsburgh this weekend. Triple G Canelo is this weekend. You have a lot going on. Plus, this is my last live chat um, for three weeks because I'm going on vacation. I'm going to the sunny shores of Carta, Colombia. Um, which should be a lot of fun. So I'm not going to be here. So this is the last one. So smoke them if you got them, Johnny. Uh, a lot of you guys have asked me about this guy, where he's been. Tell them where you've been, Barbas. Tell them what happened. Tell them what happened yesterday, dude. Tell them what happened yesterday. Take him to the dog park. We, we brush this dog all the time because if you don't, it's, it's a show. Take him to the dog park. We get home. Tell them the truth. Tell them what we found. Tell them, tell them, buddy. Tell them what we found. You know what we found? Pulga. Cochino. We found a flea on him. So we had to bathe him. We had to give him some front line. He's never had fleas before. He's seven years old. He's never had a flea. We found one flea and we freaked out. But he's doing all good. But uh, he's fine. Look at these. Show him, show him the teeth, buddy. Show him, show him these dientos. Wait, dientes picha. Dientes picho, excuse me. You don't want to show them the teeth? Look at these teeth. Dientes picho. Okay. And for good old times' sake. Manos arriba. All right. Bye, buddy. Quit whining. There we go. He's alive and well. He's a little cochino, uh, but he's a good dog. And uh, we think he's fine. So the other dog and the cat don't have fleas. So yay. All right. Although we had to bathe them too. That was a lot of fun. All right. First things first, um, did not get, usually the first comment is green. This one is not. Johnson versus Borg being rescheduled a month later. Hi, Luke. This makes no sense to me, okay? If Borg is not healthy enough to make the championship weight limit of 125 in Canada properly, how will he be healthy enough to make the championship weight in Nevada a month later? Is there something I'm missing? What sense does this make? Is the UFC just quickly rescheduling because Mighty Mouse wants it? No, I don't. I don't think that would be my major concern. Number one, just from a product standpoint, have you seen the card for UFC two seventeen or what is it two sixteen? It is not good. Here, let me pull that up. UFC two sixteen. Check out this card. It is. I mean, it's not to say there's not a couple gems on it, but it's suffering. Um, Tony Ferguson, Kevin Lee, Fabricio Verdun, Derek Lewis. Those are great. Paige Van Zandt versus Jessica 125, it's intriguing. And this is a fine fight, but it's not all that... This is not the elite end of their product. Will Harris versus Mark Godbeer. Benil Dariush versus Evan Dunham. Okay, that part's pretty good. Will Brooks and Nick Lentz is kind of interesting. Tom Dukenwa, Cody Stammen. Pearl Gonzalez versus uh, Poliana Botello. Bobby Green versus Lando Venata. John Moraga, Magomed Babulatov. Talis Lychees versus Brad Tavares, and then Matt Schnell versus Marco Beltran. Now, those are some fine fights. Those are some excellent fighters, but there's, it lacks a lot of star power, and some of that feels a little bit UFC Fight Night-ish. 
um, which is not a which is not to say it's a knock, but it's it's if you're paying for the product, there should be something a little bit uh, special about it. And these are not insignificant contests, as I'm as I'm, I'm trying to be as charitable as I can, but they're not. This is not the premium end of things. Anyway, uh, um, so one, the card could use it. That's the first thing. The second part, though, is to your point. Um, I think what happened was I've been, we've been trying to get in touch with Ray Borg, and we've we, we've been talking to him. He's a little bit hesitant about coming on the show. I'm not sure why, but neither here nor there. Uh, I don't think he was, like, desperately ill. I think what happened was they removed him out of an abundance of caution, um, which can tell you when you go back to this Amanda Nunes story about, you know, what does it mean to be medically cleared? Um, he was not medically cleared or, or at least they removed him prior to that clearance. I'm not exactly sure what the scenario is there. All I'm really pointing out is um, I don't think it's at all crazy that he could get over the illness with no weight cutting and then get right back to it three weeks later. I don't, I don't know that he was suffering that badly. He, wherever he was in the cut, I don't think it was super advanced. It was just that wherever he was, given the illness, they decided to stop it before it got worse. I think that's the idea, to avoid some kind of extreme scenario. And in fact, in avoiding that extreme scenario, they enable themselves to probably position themselves for a fight um, in October a little more readily. Now, if he gets sick again, well, all bets are off, I suppose. But um, both from a product need and depriving him, in a good sense, of going to some kind of extreme and then uh, the illness sort of subsiding relatively quickly it's just you got to remember these guys are peaking in this narrow window. So however they feel before, however they feel after is one thing, but it's that tiny, tiny, tiny narrow window. And if something gets messed up in there, it ruins the whole thing. It doesn't mean it's this it has these prolonged effects weeks and months later. That's not exactly what I mean. I mean it can mean that in certain scenarios. I don't think it means that here. They didn't stop this right when the cut got at its absolute worst. They kind of saw the writing on the wall and said, "Let's stop this before it gets, you know, to someplace really bad." Okay, conclusions to make from RDA and Cerrone looking rejuvenated at welterweight. Hi, Luke. Hope you are well. I am. Thank you. Uh, hope you are well. Uh, lightweights RDA and Cerrone have recently left the Shark Tank of that division after suffering tough losses and look rejuvenated in the welterweight division with each having put on impressive performances since the transitions. What do you think the reason for their improved performances at a higher weight class compared to their last lightweight performance is? Is it to do with the depth of the talent being greater in lightweight division, therefore more tougher opponents? The weight cut taking its toll on these fighters as they approach the twilight of their careers, meaning their lightweight performances are hindered? Is it down to the differences in their training with RDA changing camps and Cerrone's last time sparring? Or is it something else? Both fighters have been in the multiweight title shot mix after a relatively short time, which makes me think it is due to a limited amount of potential contenders in that division. I think partly welterweight is not quite as deep as lightweight used to be. I think the other thing is wrestling can still be a big part of MMA and no matter what is still a big part of MMA. But I think like 10 years ago, if you had a size advantage wrestling and you came from a wrestling, maybe not even 10 years ago, seven or eight years ago or something like that, five, that five to 10 window. If you were, um, if you had a background in wrestling and you had a size advantage as well, remember, if you took a wrestler and you made him strike, they'll probably gas a lot sooner. The, this is a relatively unfamiliar territory. 
Um, they don't know how their mechanics aren't fluid. Their breathing probably isn't really all that measured. They're just not as good at it. But you could take a guy, even with a bad weight cut, and if they've got a wrestling advantage, however big that may be, and then a size advantage, even if they're depleted, they can probably just lord over you with that depletion and just ride it out because they know how to wrestle technically. They know how to breathe. They know which muscles to use. They know what positions they need to get to to relax, all kinds of things. And I think now that um, MMA is a little bit more uh, less wrestling-centric than it once was, it used to be for a while their wrestlers, even I'm not, I'm not even talking the Mark Coleman days, more like the John Fitch era. Um, if you could just wrestle, when I'm, I guess John Fitch UFC era, because he's obviously still competing, so I don't want to take that away from him. Um, but that UFC John Fitch era, even if you could wrestle back then, there was still such a dominant presence about it that I think you could just cut weight and say, screw it. Um, and now that that's not the case and your wrestling gets nullified, um, what is a real benefit of having a size advantage striking? Some maybe. Um, but you know, if you talk to, I've talked to Cerrone's coaches, they think he can take a shot better at 170 than he can at 155. When that depleted, um, the shots just hurt that much more, and they land with that much more impact, and his body just doesn't have as much, quite literal mass to absorb it. Um, and so, what benefit is there if you're going to be, a, if you're going to end up doing a portion of the game? And of course, he's a natural striker, but. For somebody like RDA, who has sort of turned into a natural striker but came from jiu-jitsu, um, if you're going to be spending a portion of the game doing things that are, at least relatively speaking, a little bit more foreign, um, what, what really is the benefit of doing that in a depleted state where, again, to the body or to the head, the shots can put you away quicker? I've talked to a lot of fighters who say when they've cut weight, um, they don't take shots on the chin nearly as well as when they're replenished. So... Now that striking is just a bigger part of the game, there's a, just a question you have to ask yourself about how much it's worth it to deplete, especially if you're like RDA and you can wrestle and you can do jiu-jitsu, you can still find those positions. Now, you don't have the same size advantage you once did, but um, in the case of the Magni fight, which was kind of interesting, he just knocked him right off of his feet. didn't really matter. So here's my point. I definitely feel like the reason I just mentioned is one of them. The other one is we need to be careful about drawing some broad conclusions because this is a very small sample size. Um, it's just Cerrone and RDA, at least in this particular context. Several people have moved up in weight and have had some beneficial results or guys have tried to drop and not had them, right? Let's say um, Anthony Pettis, something like that. Conor McGregor, a little bit different, but it's there's an open question about given what it took to get to 145 for him, how reasonable is it to even... I mean, you saw him at 153, like, was some irreparable damage done in terms of the threshold, uh, in terms of the way he can make? Something to be said for that. Um, so I just think the game has changed a little bit, and as a consequence, the need for it isn't, isn't exactly there. And if guys are going to be much fresher, um, and in a space where being much fresher has more importance than being bigger... It's good. The game's going to kind of take care of itself a little bit. I think that's really what it is. Someone says Masvidal has looked much better too. I think it's a combination of not as much weight cutting for sure, plus lightweight being a tougher division, no doubt. Plus some good welterweights not being in the UFC. That's true. Uh, plus a lot of guys aging and not fighting and having some issues. Yeah, I mean some of these guys at welterweight are a little bit longer in the tooth. The problem, like a, a division like bantamweight or lightweight, it just appears like the youth keep surging to the top at a much faster clip. Um, 
and talking about welterweight, some names that come to mind, GSP, Diaz, Condit, Lawler, Hendricks, and the champ himself is no spring chicken. Yeah, could be all of those things, which, by the way, means that cutting weight has also less of an advantage because it has a significantly more, um, a significantly, it depletes you in a, in a much more serious way. So uh, I think all of those are, are, are all great reasons. There's never one reason, right? It's always a combination of things. And I think all of those are, are, are true to form. How old, by the way, is RDA? I do not know the answer to that off the top of my head. How old is Rafael dos Anjos? 32. So he's a little bit older now as well. Uh, but that's still, I think Tar Wood is what, 35 going on 36? They'll like this. My wife left me this. Eeyore. Smile. F smiling. All right. But I will say, man, if you saw the Monday Morning Analyst, RDA looked awesome at welterweight against Neil Magny. And uh, I, made it, I made it a big point on my Monday Morning Analyst. I'm going to bring it up again. I was very, very, very happy to hear him say he likes fighting these tall, lanky guys. There is this myth floating around. I'm not exactly sure where it came from. That like tall, lanky guys have this incredible advantage in jiu-jitsu. They can in certain contexts. The Tony... Ferguson Darst scenario is one where from a front headlock, if you can lock it up, you've got a great opportunity there. But in general, it, like anything, it has some benefits and it has some downsides. Part of my nose itchy. And one of the downsides is that when somebody, and Neil Magny faced himself in this situation, or I should say found himself in a situation against both Demi and Maya and RDA, when he's on his back and he's extending his legs away from his body, you're creating a ton of room and it takes even longer to bring that space together to block any kind of movement into it uh it's it's in that context it is a terrible liability and he talked about that and plus when he was sort of when rda was in that super high mount and he's got his hands all the way up you know it's like i mean i'm surprised he didn't try and snatch the arm bar there which he could have quite easily i guess he just felt more comfortable you know forcing uh forcing a roll from um magni the other thing that kind of stuck out to me about that fight which is kind of interesting too was that all the mount escapes they teach you in jujitsu, like there's one where you can do, you know, you can um, you overhook one side of the arm and then you step over the leg on the same side and then you don't bridge over your head, you bridge over your shoulder. You can roll them from there. You can do an elbow escape. You put the elbow uh, in the hip, right? And you bridge and then you push the knee and then you slide your hips the other way and it allows you to recapture half guard and then you can do it and go back to guard. That's another way. But all of the ways in which they teach you how to like uh, get out of mount in MMA are real bad. I mean, if you can get the overhook and then you can step over and you can roll, that's great. Uh, you rarely ever see that in high-level MMA. The ones you most commonly see is you see some version. What's up, buddy? Having some fun back there? <laughs> you see, uh, you see the uh, some version of the elbow escape where guys will jump to half guard and then try and regard to full, and then I think from there it's a little bit better. But you know, you saw Magni just desperately try and turn. He's got these super long arms to create so much room that even if, uh, even if you pull back a little bit, like once, once you, like I mentioned this before, I think of your body as, you know, 
north south once a, once this left hand crosses that dividing line it's not necessarily wrong there could be reasons for that but you need to be careful because every time it crosses that line you're in danger of something bad happening or vice versa right anytime you're like this um at least in a defensive position an attacking position you're going to want to get a cross choke and you can come down with it but um Barbus, come here that's it very good uh anytime you do that you can get in trouble and he was like reaching like this i think he was just desperate to turn to his base uh and then just sort of fight out of back control i think one of the things that someone rather than worry about like what's the best points and sub only and da 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 da, da and i know they work on escapes and ebi and stuff but no one really works on escapes from high mount eating punches uh, with a good answer for MMA. Everything is tailored towards a system where forearm in the hip, pushing the knee, slide out. It's just, it's not, it's not great. I mean, there's other escapes from out beyond those two, but no, none of them are great. There you go, a little, little aside that sort of occurred to me. Uh, Shevchenko and offensive pressure. Most delightful of weeks, this person writes. Before anything, I was one of those who had Shevchenko winning the title fight on Saturday. I had it rounds two, three, four for Shevchenko. I think you could arguably even give her the fifth, but I won't argue too hard about it. So let's say one and five, Amanda Nunes, two through four, Shevchenko. That's how I had it. But also thought it was a really tight fight. I agree. And the decision wasn't a robbery. I'd also agree. Having written that, what struck me in the fight was that while Valentina is a great defensive fighter, she seemed to have really great difficulties transitioning to pushing the offense and was oddly content in letting Nunez determine the pace and space of the fight. Space, maybe. Pace, I don't think so. Although a little bit. Do you feel that is a fair criticism of Valentina? Do you think it is a, potentially, a potential vulnerability that a future fighter might benefit from? I think the real issue there is that she is fighting in the wrong weight class. Now, I know people have made that point before, but let me illustrate in this way. She weighed in at what, 133.4 or something, somewhere in that ballpark? I mean, you know, just walking around at that weight class. And we talked previously about, you know, guys not cutting so much. It's one thing to say, hey, you shouldn't cut so much. It's another thing to say, I mean, you're not cutting at all. You know, and I, granted, there hasn't been a 125-pound weight, weight class at this point for her to go to in the UFC. Obviously, that's changing. But you understand what I'm saying. Uh, I thought the biggest issue was that, yes, Nunez hits hard. I didn't think Shevchenko was overly worried about that by itself. What it looked like to me was she had a real big difficulty and something she knew she was going to have difficulty around um, with the reach. She had real trouble getting inside, which is to me why you saw a lot of Superman punches, especially through the second and third round, just leaping into range because you had Amanda standing with the hand out like this, you know, um, just sort of taking control of the real estate. And so as a consequence, I think Shevchenko was having a hard time and, and probably anticipated as much figuring out a way around that. If she was real tight like this, it wouldn't be nearly as hard to get in unless they had just these incredibly explosive hands. And I think Amanda has fast hands, but I don't think that's necessarily what she's best at. I mean, if, if, if anybody has the speed advantage between those two, it's got to be Shevchenko. So... To me, it was, you had this person who's got this really long frame. I mean, you see with John Jones, he puts the hand out there. It's hard for guys to deal with it. The Gustafson has a, a similar kind of effect, not not to the extreme extent, but um, a little bit as well. 
less so Struve because I don't think he fights very tall. So you get the idea. Um, and I think that's really the issue. She's just fighting somebody who is so much naturally bigger, and in this particular case, a lot longer, that as a counterfighter and as someone at a very significant, if not you know necessarily measuring on the arm length, just somebody who had this real difficulty dealing with someone else's length more generally, uh, that force her to fight on the outside, force her to fight in a counter way, or you know, find these moments to explode into range. So she was a little bit at the mercy, and you know, I think because of the stance, you know, she went out here, and because the arms were so long, she had to wait for um, Nunes to open up. The other key thing to think about is Shevchenko doesn't have much of a jab. She really sort of fights with check hooks and crosses, or and I don't know if she's doing any uppercuts, but those are her primary weapons. Check hooks over the top. She did that a lot against Holly Holm, and she throws the rear hand as well. Um, doesn't have much of a jab, so she can't. She has real trouble getting inside, which is why she likes to counter, right? Check hook, counter, backhand, counter. You know, that's what she's always looking for. So it's a style matchup and whatever else. But to me, the forward pressure thing, I mean, I don't really – it's not that I discount standing in the middle of the octagon, but number one, in the hierarchy of things, you only go to octagon control when uh, – Effective grappling and effective striking are essentially equal, um, which in some of those rounds, I could maybe see that, but taking center is not de facto octagon control. Uh, if I'm letting you have it, because I don't really care if you have it, I don't need to have it to win. Uh, and in fact, if I tried to take it and then I tried to move forward and I'd get countered and I get crushed, that does me no good. And in Shevchenko's mind, to which extent is quite debatable, but in Shevchenko's mind, at least in those three middle rounds, you had Nunes coming, or yes, Nunes coming forward and then being more effectively countered. A, you shouldn't even go to octagon control, and if you do, what control if you're if you're losing the fight on striking terms? So then that's the argument that one would make. And again, I think that round three is you know obviously you could, you could score for Nunes, and that would be totally justifiable given the scoring criteria and all the other things that you know I think about judging. Um, so. I don't know. Less a less. Oh god, here we go. So, oh, Danny is writing me. He says um, her sloppy head and arm throw would have likely worked on the fifth against a one twenty five er. Yeah, probably. If you go back and you watch, I believe it was it, the problem with the throw was if you're going to do a head throw, you got to get all the way on the outside of their legs so that the hips rotate. Right, you have set up a blocking mechanism, and their body has to rotate to come over the top. She almost did it like a Uchimata, which is up in between both legs, in which case you're just not going to get enough hip rotation because you saw that when Nunez landed, she landed hips facing the mat, which if you watch the Monday Morning Analyst, we talk about it all the time. You always want to you always want to land hips facing the mat on takedown, either if you're taking someone down or if you're trying to defend the takedown and you end up both crashing. Hips facing the mat is where you want to be, but if you're going to throw them from that head toss, you got to turn them and burn them, man. You got to really get them to get that hip rotating, and she didn't really do it. So that was strategically quite bad, um, and and it seems like quite costly for her in the end. Because I thought she was winning that fifth round. The question is, of course, what significance is it if you put the hook in for five seconds and then don't do anything with it? Um, you know, points jujitsu would have been. It doesn't matter what the significance is because once you put that second hook in, it you, you know what the point value is. And if you know that there's a point value to it, you fight it like hell. So there you go. Did Shevchenko be accused of taking round one off? 
I felt like she offered very little in that round and therefore can't complain that she lost a razor thin decision. Um, she's going to be on my show today, so I will ask her. And then, of course, someone notes, according to Shevchenko, she dislocated a finger in the middle of the first round, which was fixed between rounds. That could explain it. That could definitely explain it. Um, iPhone 8 and the iPhone X, or 10. Ooh. No question, just go ahead and rant. I'm bringing the popcorn to this live chat. I mean, look, these are fine phones. Uh, I'm a Mac laptop kind of guy, and I'm an Android phone kind of guy. I hear people complain about Android phones all the time. I've never understood it. Every time someone's had a complaint about it, it's like this has literally never happened to any of my phones. I believe that um, iPhones now allow tethering. I was always an Android guy because tethering was previously a lot easier to do on an Android phone than, than the last one. I have the Google Pixel. This is the Google-made phone. And prior to this, I only get them every two years, like when the contract goes up. Prior to this one, I think I, I want to say I had the Galaxy Note 4, which was an excellent phone. I mean, such a good phone. Um, but I, my, my only point about this is, is that these updates are, especially for the iPhone 8, are relatively insignificant. The iPhone X being $1,000. Um, you know, they need to keep up this sort of like Olaf... Uh, or Bang and Olufsen sort of sense about consumer electronics where it's supposed to be high-end, but you're paying for way more than, like, performance-wise, I want to see what the next Google Pixel phone can do because I guarantee you it'll match or surpass it. Um, it, it. Long story short is that, like, for Google, for for the laptop, if you want to buy a Mac product, I do believe there's a lot of reasons to think they're superior. The virus thing used to be a little bit stronger of an argument. It's a little less strong now, but even then it's still a little bit stronger. But I just like the way the operating system works. And yeah, if you want to work entire inside the entire Apple ecosystem, that makes sense as well. But my only objection with the iPhones is that people buy them because, one, I don't think they realize how good Android phones are, or two, they're just they're just loyal to a brand, which I've never really like. Why are you loyal to Apple? They employ slaves in in China. Awesome about this humanitarian brand that you like. Everything they come out, I gotta get. Oh, it looks so stylish. First of all, it doesn't look all that stylish. It looks kind of cool. Number number two, the facial recognition. The early reviews on the iPhone 10 were that you have to like every time you want to unlock your phone, you gotta look like you're you're you know some fitness vlogger in the middle of the street talking to your phone like a dumbass. You know, you've seen these guys that carry their cameras around here. I'm here's me going to the grocery store. You know. Like some t totally bored millennial whose life exists strictly in online snaps, uh, you know, it, it, it's it's just it's this. It, I, I just what I what I really dislike is that it's a adherence to a brand that doesn't really merit your adherence. I buy the Mac laptop because it's it is it is uh, functionally better for my needs, uh, you know. And I'm a moral hypocrite too because here I am buying their products, but at least I don't come out and say. Oh man, I love everything Apple. <laughs> like I can't even imagine saying that. You know, it's like I, I don't know how quite, quite exactly how to explain it, but this fealty to a multinational corporation that uh, has at best dubious ethical practices overseas, um, and in some ways wants to control um, the online world in a way that is in keeping with their interests uh, versus a more open one. You know. Why, why on earth would you be loyal to a product like that? And when the new Google, when the second Google Pixel comes out, I guarantee it'll be just as good, if not better, especially in low-light camera scenarios. So 
You want to go waste your money on some basura? Do it. Ah, otro pulgas. All right. Let's see. Canelo versus Triple G or Rockhold versus Branch. We're looking forward to. So I'll start like more briefly. God, these lamps are so hot. Um, which of these two are you most looking forward to? Canelo versus Triple G. I just have to admit it. I, it's the middleweight division in boxing. 160 is um, right. The, the two most important divisions in boxing are middleweight and heavyweight. Now, there's of course been great fighters. Uh, you know, lower weight classes, and there's been great fighters and well, nothing higher than heavyweight necessarily, but between middleweight and heavyweight, right? Um, there's been plenty of them, but those are the two most storied. If you look at some of the best fighters ever at middleweight, it's like it's you know, a who's who of the best fighters ever, um, and heavyweight as well. So, to me, the fact that you've got Triple G and Canelo fighting, you know, it could be one versus two, depending where you want to rank Lomachenko, obviously, but certainly in the middleweight division, it's one versus two or 1A, 1B. That is a reason to watch it alone. And it's also not a coincidence to me that the most exciting fight they can make in boxing right now, uh, at least on paper, happens to take place in the middleweight division. This is a division that is uh, as storied as they come. And so you take two guys, two heavy hitters, two guys who don't back up. Um, it just promises to be an absolutely sensational contest. And I made this point before, you know, in the end, I think Mayweather McGregor was perfectly entertaining, but you, you just look at these fights where you exceed. There are no pay-per-views that have less than 4 million buys, but more than 3 million. Think about that for just a second. You've got them at two, seven and down and then four, four, five or four, six and up. And there's a space in between there. And, I don't, I don't have the world's strongest theory about this, but my basic hunch is that you can get these hyper uh, buy rates when you manufacture something around itself in a way where it's not what it's supposed to be, but it has some kind of bizarre commercial appeal. But that if you make something in line with what the support is supposed to be, so who's the best middleweight on the planet, right? That is a very natural question to ask about boxing. Um, it turned into extra, extraordinary commercial success, although I do think it'll clear a million buys on pay-per-view, and it already has a 30 million sold-out gate at uh, T-Mobile. Uh, you'll recall, I believe Canelo versus Mayweather was only 20, 22 million at the gate, so this already beat that. You know, you hear these numbers like 72 million, 55 million. These are so far outside what even the old records used to be. Um, 30 million is a tremendous gate, huge gate. Uh, top five all time, I think. Extraordinary. Uh, and it'll, I think it'll still, if you put it in its normal context, it can still be very commercially successful, just not in these hyper realistic ways. And um, so in the end, I can't complain about how Mayweather McGregor turned out. I, I, I'm, I, as Max Kellerman said, it's the best version of what that fight could have been. It's just that you got this weird fight that was not necessary that you probably won't reproduce either with those actors or similar ones anytime soon. And it, I would rather have less commercial success than the hyper version still do very well 
and still have some kind of some kind of um, sporting integrity to it. There's nothing wrong with the occasional show just for show. Uh, I think people are like, well, this fight's just a show. Well, okay, well, maybe it was, but what's wrong with show for show? N nothing on its own terms. It's just that I, I like to have a little bit more of a centered product that doesn't have the high watermarks, the, the, the high marks that um, it just feels a lot more right. You know, and it promises to be maybe one of the best boxing fights of the year, last five or ten years. Um, it, it, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say it could hit that. But in defense of Rockhold versus Branch, I mean, the card's okay. Shout-outs to uh, Gilbert Burns, by the way, who's going to compete on that card. And then the very next week is going to ADCC. So that is a very tough uh uh, schedule for him but Rockhold versus Branch should be a good fight I mean Branch only has what three losses on his career he's got the uh let's see Anthony Johnson loss Kusmar Pajares and then the um the one where he got slammed the, was it um Gerald Smith was that who slammed him I can't remember off the top of my head I can see it in my head but I can't remember the uh fighter's name so please forgive me but dude hasn't lost since 2012 and even against Rumble Johnson, he went the distance for three-round fight, but still. David Branch is a super good fighter. Really good fighter. I tend to think Luke Rockhold will win, but um I think it's I think it's way I, I think it could be a lot more competitive than folks may realize. MMA is crazy. Maybe Rockhold goes in there and uppercuts him in 30 seconds, you know. I don't know. But I don't the, the outcome is not as much in suspense, nor is the fight as big as Canelo versus Triple G, but it's got a lot of merit to it. I think it's a fine fight for uh, David Branch, who needs a big name on his resume to say, I finally slayed one of these top-tier dragons. And for Luke Rockhold, who was the champ and brutally lost his title, who's been out for a while, you know, he needs a strong performance. And sorry, I mean, whatever you think about David Branch as a personality or a a guy who can, you know, get everyone interested in watching him fight. He's a super legit talent. David Branch is an excellent fighter, and he's good at everything. And I, I think it's a fine fight, whatever you want to choose to watch. I'm just going to watch Canelo versus Triple G. I think that fight has the potential to be, like, quite literally historic. All right, let's see here. They cowled in me. Uh, hold on one second. All right, next one. True, false. John Jones will never fight in the UFC again. False. I do think he will. How and when, I don't know. Connor will never leave SBG. If I had to bet, I would bet that's true. Mike Perry will fight for a UFC belt someday. Ooh. Hmm. That's a tough one because he actually is pretty talented. You know what? Fuck it. I'll say true. Uh, Rory versus Woodley rematch is the best co-promotion. Or co-promotion. Oh, I see what you mean. That the UFC could do right now. Is it the best they could do right now? Uh, it's up there. Yeah, maybe true. Sage Northcutt will be out of the UFC by the start of 2019. True. Fedor will win another MMA fight. True. Connor versus Habib in Russia was ever seriously considered by the UFC. Seriously considered, sure. 
serious attempts, no. The most jacked up UFC division is light heavyweight. Yeah, it's pretty jacked. Uh, someone else answers the questions a little differently. Um, will John Jones ever, ever fight the UFC again? Someone says false. John will get a smaller suspension than people think and will be back. I think that's likely to be true. Uh, Connor will never leave SBG. True. Mike Perry. True. Rory. False. Neither fighter has a rabid fan base. A better option would have been a free show involving Fedor or, or Chael. I don't think so. Not anymore. My sense about the folks at Spike after the Bellator NYC card is that they realize that there's still a market for the older guys particularly on free TV. You saw Tito Ortiz do good numbers on free TV. Um, Chael Sonnen did good numbers on free TV, I believe. Or is, e, 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 Let me see that one real quick. Yes, I believe that's right, against Tito, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that when it comes to pay-per-view, it's not clear that folks want to pony up money for it anymore, which kind of puts them in a bit of a bind because they're the ones that have the most star power. But they need to find some way to make Rory's star. Uh, they need to make him a bigger star, and they need to find some way to mix the two, the the young guys that everyone are really excited about as legit fighters plus older guys. They need to find a better combo to make that work on the pay side. It's a little bit easier to make that work on the free side because just about anybody will watch on the free side. Hey, Chael's going to fight. How much does it cost? Oh, it's free. Hey, all right, let's let's watch it. You know, that might be kind of fun. Two hours, three hours on a Friday or Saturday, no big deal. Putting up cash for it, though, is a little bit different. And uh, again, Rory has never proven to be necessarily a big pay-per-view draw, but that's where their challenge comes in and perhaps turning him into a bigger one in, uh, in the process. Okay. Um, Someone says Fedor is very done. Blah, blah, blah. Boring championship fights. This is a very important question. As much as UFC and their fan base might be critical of champions playing it overly safe, Woodley and Nunes being the recent examples, am I misguided in feeling that UFC has unintentionally made that the smart approach to fighting? Almost all the big money is tied to being the champion, as that is how you get the pay-per-view cut and the maximum official sponsorship money, while being a showy, entertaining fighter doesn't really carry that much benefit anymore, as outside sponsors can only have such a limited association with your fights. Additionally, due to the overstretching of the schedule, UFC will always have a need for champions to headline those cards, no matter what claims Dana White does to the press. So has UFC essentially incentivized hesitant approaches to championship fights as the only thing that really matters is remaining the champion? I mean, I don't know how you could possibly disagree with it. This is an excellent, excellent observation and an excellent question. And that, and, and I, I saw Patrick Wyman on Twitter, shouts to him, saying he didn't think it was necessarily a, um, a trend yet, but it's, it's a little bit worrisome that it's happening. I mean, look... All of the incentive structures have changed. Now, it was always the case that the title conferred a little bit more upon you than it once, than than not having the title, right? But to your point, you can make a ton of money in sponsors now. Who you know it doesn't really matter. Yes, there are guys like you know it was amazing six months ago. Everyone's like Nate Diaz has shown that the title doesn't matter anymore. No, Nate Diaz has shown the title doesn't matter for Nate Diaz. He doesn't need the title. No, but lots of other people do. Uh, especially the Amanda Nunez's and the Tyron Woodley's of the world. And so losing can have an absolutely devastating effect 
on your earning potential, your visibility, and a whole lot more. I mean, really, so much of your ability to succeed and be seen by the public is a function of wearing that belt. You're at the top of the cards. You are headlining for more money. It's it's just they are radically two different worlds. Uh, the amount of press that's interested in you. I mean, it's so could not be more different. And so you've got guys like Willie. Now, Woodley was injured with his labrum. So I think that partly explains it. But Amanda Nunes, she just fought that way because she fought that way. And it's a fine way to fight. So one, I absolutely think that that's totally uh, the reason is that it's a real feast or famine scenario given who has the belt. Now, even if you have the belt, it, there are not necessarily as many guarantees as people might think, but it's a lot better than the alternative where you're fighting, you know, the third fight on a main card on, you know, somewhere in, I don't know, Gdansk, right? Um, it's just a lot different. So there's that. I think the other component here is that, number one, we also kind of have to accept, it's not even championship fights necessarily that are like this, but I think there's more, I mentioned before, MMA has, relative to what it used to be, a lot less wrestling. Again, wrestling still a huge part, but again, relative to it, what, what it was, there's less wrestling. I think there's a little bit more parity in MMA than there used to be. Defense is getting better. And so you're seeing a lot more decisions generally. I don't have the numbers on that. I know some of the Fight Metro guys occasionally watch this, so if they have them and they want to send it to me, I'd be happy to. Um, but um, it's just harder and harder and harder to put a guy away. And when you have less incentive to take risks and you need to take a risk to put a guy away because it's just very hard to do that, I mean, do the math on your own. Um, I think the other sort of component here that beside, besides the nature of the belt and besides the, I think, the nature of MMA itself, or at least high-level MMA, um, what was the other one that had sort of occurred to me? Someone says, it would be nice if champions had it in their contract. Oh, here's what I'm thinking of. I've been having this conversation about, uh, on my radio show, about, uh, you know, what, what the, and Ben Folks wrote about this as well, what the commonality was, the shared trait between the Gavin Tucker loss and the Gilbert Melendez loss, where we let these guys go way too long and they're taking an ex exorbitant amount of unnecessary damage. What, what can you really what can we do to stop that kind of thing? Because the, the corners are not bad people, nor are they poorly trained, but the referee's not doing their job and the corner's not doing their job, their perceived job, because they've got a different sense of priorities. Either you should win because we have this totally unrealistic sense about how likely a turnaround victory is, or, hey, you might be losing, but quitting is just something that's not acceptable, even though it'd be very much in their interest to do so. I actually put out a tweet the other day asking, you know, name a fighter in MMA, at least in the you know, relative modern era, who either quit on the stool or whose corner threw in the towel for them. And you can check that out um, at L. Thomas News. The thread is full of a lot of great answers, but there's not many to pick from. There's like, what, 15 you can name somewhere around there, a dozen or so? It's, I mean, you could name hundreds in, in uh, boxing or even thousands probably. It's very, very, very few. Here's my point. Um... One thing wrestling does, it's a little bit it's a little bit of a side issue, is that the referees, the, the, uh, the officials, are tasked with um, pressing the action. Wrestling has a culture of pressing the action. You know, if you're not attacking, you're defending. But the referees do it as well. I mean, if there's a stalemate, start them over again. Um, 
if, if you know if, if there's uh, timidity on the mat, flag them. Uh, and there's some of that in jujitsu where you know, if there's a double guard pull. You see that a lot in the black belt divisions. I saw Gianni Grippo at the DC Open. And he, I forget who he was going up against, but you know, Gianni Grippo is famous. Him and all his opponents just always have these double guard pulls. Um, and I think there's rules about if someone doesn't like take command or come up within a minute or two. I don't know exactly the rules, but then they flag them both, you know, and they both get penalties. But it's very, very limited. There's not a lot they do for timidity in jujitsu, um, and I think that's why people like. Um, Submission only. I, I'm a firm believer that in the right context, points jujitsu is way more entertaining than submission only and retains significantly more combative application. It's not a debate I can have with you right now, but I, I, I am firmly of the belief. This is, I have nothing against submission only. It's a fine alternative, but I don't think it's a. It doesn't attract as many good competitors, and I, you know, just to give up mount because there's no real cost to it. To me, that's a non-starter, but. Uh, but the point being is in jiu-jitsu and in MMA, we don't put a ton of emphasis on the officiating crew to press the action. Now, you've seen it on occasion where the referee will warn people, hey, I need you guys to do something more than what you're doing. And then they kind of pick it up for a little bit. And it's a little bit better, but just enough to not get flagged again. Whereas the referees in wrestling, which is a very different sport, I understand it, but they're blowing the whistle constantly, man. They're really a driving force. And I guess my point being is, for all the things that you've mentioned about the way in which the belts are structured, that's one problem for sure. Another one is MMA defense is just better. But the other one is we don't empower the officiating crew, in this case, the referee, to really drive action. You know, we've got it. MMA is changing in so many ways, and the rules are, are not. You know, we've talked about this with judging about how, you know, asking a guy to make a choice within 30 to 60 seconds with no ability to revise and no ability to like look at statistical information and no or very limited ability to use any kind of technological aids and in some cases no ability this is a terrible way to ask someone to make a judgment call it's really bad it's 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 prone to all kinds of error why would you, why would we think this is a good idea it's a terrible idea it desperately needs to be updated or changed or innovated or something something needs to happen and i also think if we're, we're as MMA defense gets better, and as these fights begin, I mean, this is an entertainment product, man. You know, if you just want to go to a pure jiu-jitsu match and it's a tournament structure and everyone just works their way through the tournament, well, that's fine. You know, I mean, maybe it's boring, but it's not designed really to be a spectator sport. It's a participatory sport. Hey, my my uh, uh, brother-in-law is an accountant. He's a purple belt. Hey, my neighbor is a white belt with two stripes. Hey, that cop I know is a black belt or, you know, whatever. They all like to compete on Saturdays. I mean, that's that's fine. Maybe we don't have to worry about pressing the action there. But if it's an entertainment product and the, the referee doesn't really want to get involved unless he has to, we need to shift that a little bit, man. We need to let tell these guys, do something. Do something. Okay, good. Taking a point. Do something. Do something. Here's a warning. Do something. Do something. Okay. You know, start them off. I don't know. Do it EBI rules. <laughs> start them off in, you know, back control or mount or something, you know. Uh, I'm obviously kidding with that, but if the referees can't do much in terms of cracking the whip on them and they have no incentive to make themselves do anything more because a loss would be catastrophic for their career. Everyone says they could also experiment with finish bonuses. I think the last Nunes and Woodley fights would have looked very different and have been much more fan-friendly if the champ had a chance to win a substantial six-figure finish bonus. 
Maybe. Maybe that's true. I can't say it's not. I just feel like to me, if defense is better and the refs can't do much and the belts mean so much to them, it's kind of what you're going to get unless you get a guy like Justin Gaethje. You know, that's why he's the unicorn, you know. Smile. Uh, Yanjicek Namajunas at UFC 217. I was slightly surprised by the announcement of this bout at UFC 217 as I knew Joanna had been pushing to fight at MSG. The card was already so stacked. Even more importantly, UFC 216 has a pretty weak card and UFC hasn't announced anything for UFC 218 or 219 in December. All cards that probably would have benefited from having the strawweight fight there when looking at the currently available options for the rest of the year. Do you think Joanna fighting at UFC 217 was UFC just wanting to really stack that card while wanting to reward Joanna uh, Champion for being such a stalwart fighter for them? I think it's a couple of things, or rather, or was it a sign that Joanna's new management has a better understanding of her worth to UFC and is more willing to play hardball in negotiations? Perhaps that, I don't, I don't know the exact story, uh, in her case anyway. Um, one, there's more visibility for her if she fights on a big card like that. I think there, there's an argument that, like, everybody likes Joanna Champion. I, I really, literally never – I mean, there's a couple of haters on Twitter who are like, she's she's boring. And, okay, if you find her boring, I mean, whatever. I, I, you know, I don't know what to say. But, the, the, frankly, that's not a lot of people who, who believe that. I think most of us would agree she's pretty great. But her numbers are not indicative of anything close to star power. You know, anecdotally, when I went to the open workouts in Dallas, was she well received? Yeah, like people loved her. Um, the hard, the people that know her love her, but not a lot of people know her, or at least know her enough to want to get to know more. Um, is it because she's gone to decision a lot? Maybe. Um, but you cannot make the argument she's a draw on pay per view. She's there's, there's very little evidence that's true. Um, the, the issue you have to ask yourself is why isn't that true? You know, has she had the right amount of exposure? Is she getting the right kind of wins? Um, I don't know. But the key consideration there is, yes, it stacks 217 in an extraordinary way. I mean, I mean, look at this card. This card is bonkers good. Bonkers good. The dragon is back. Yes, for taking melatonin. Not exactly, but... Here's what you have, seriously, on this card right now. Ready? Bisping GSP, Garbrandt Dillashaw, and Jacek Namajunas. So three titles. Ayman right? Zahabi versus Ricardo Ramos, Johnny Hendricks, Paulo Bohashinya, uh, Alexia Linick versus Curtis Blades. That's a fine fight. Uh, Gazimora Antigulov versus Ion Kutaleba, who's a madman. Corey Anderson, Patrick Cummins, Stephen Thompson versus Jorge Masvidal. Wonderboy, of course, and then Randy Brown versus Mickey Gall. Man, that is a, it's a pretty stacked card, y'all. I mean, there's not a lot of complaints about that one. Um, and so the case with Ginjicic is she probably is looking for a little bit more visibility. Now, you know, you fight on a Conor McGregor card, chances are it's going to be a little bit easier to get noticed. Now, in the end, what he does seems to overshadow everything, so maybe she can peek through a little bit better, especially if she gets a finish over uh, Nama Yunus, who's also well-liked. But I think that's probably the big consideration there is if you fight on the Detroit card, you know, you, A, you probably won't make as much money. You might make more money because collectively that card's going to make more money. And two, fighting on a GSP card means more people are going to see it. They're going to see you. 
So that's uh, my guess is that's really what this was all about, which was rather than carrying the load, um, benefit from the collective action because people are going to want to know to see her in the bantamweight contest and the middleweight contest as well. So there you go. What? Injechek Namunas reminds me of when I was too poor to afford food after boot camp and I would combine ramen noodles and hot dogs because it's all I had left. I have no idea what that means. Darren Till. Hi, Luke. What do you make of unranked Darren Till getting a shot against number six ranked Cerrone? Seems to have come from left field, but Till looks like a big, dangerous fighter who wants to prove himself. Why do you think Till gets this shot? He stated on the MMA Hour that Sean Shelby just asked him if he wanted to fight Cerrone. Do you think they are trying to play on the fact that he comes from a UK city, Liverpool, with fanatical MMA support? Also, do you know much about him? How do you see this matchup going? It looks like it should be an exciting fight. Um, there's a feature on Till up on MMA Junkie today. You can check that out. But I, I think this is a great contest. I think Till and the, some of these European guys, look at Merbek Tysimov. Merbek Tysimov, man... Part of the reason why he's been inactive has been his injuries. But he's not been inactive in Europe because of his visa issues. He just can't get here. And he was saying so many guys have turned down fights against him. It's hard for him to get fights. And if you think about it, they gave him Felipe Silva, who was, you know, not the biggest name and not necessarily a guy who's done all the, the most amazing things in MMA, but is not some garbage fighter. He's a good fighter, especially when his background is striking. And he got, he got crushed in 90 seconds. Like, they're running out of guys to face him that want to go to Europe and do it on those cards with less visibility and money there. Uh, it's a problem. But that doesn't mean he can't fight. It just means he there are complicating factors that are preventing him from really accelerating through the ranks. And I think Darren Till looks like a guy, at least on paper and what we've seen so far, maybe he's got some potential. They're looking for that next breakout UK star. You know, Michael Bisping's a little bit older. Dan Hardy doesn't fight anymore. We'll see if he comes back. But... Um, I think they want to build up somebody. Darren Till looks like he's got a ton of ability. Plus, he speaks Portuguese. That doesn't hurt. Um, but to me, it's 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 not complicated at all. Darren Till has looked uh, raw, but very good. And Cerrone, we know, is talented, but is on back-to-back -back losses. Darren Till has not taken a ton of damage in his career. Cerrone has. Darren Till is this upstart. Cerrone's a little bit more of a veteran. They both have fan-friendly styles. The matchup seems intriguing. One guy wants to make a name for himself. The other guy wants to prove he's still got it and likes to compete on a regular schedule. Seems to work just fine for me. Um, I love it. I love the fight. And I think Darren Till has a real opportunity here to, to, to change his life. Man, you beat Don Cerrone or you finish him and and you're going places. You know, you're going to start fighting on some of these big U.S. cards or any of the big pay-per-view cards, wherever they end up putting them, which is typically in North and South America. But you get the idea. Uh, you're going to do something pretty special. Or if they do another pay-per-view somehow in the UK, they'll put them on that one. You know, but um, you got to give some of these guys from Europe a chance, man. They have a hard time breaking through because it's hard to get ranked guys to want to fight someone over there, either because they don't know who they are or what's the real benefit of beating them or whatever. So, look, credit to Cerrone for taking on a very tough challenge with very little upside for him, relatively speaking. There's not no upside. I mean, breaking a two-fight you know, two losing streak is obviously a lot better than a three-fight losing streak. So 
he's got some real opportunity for him as well. And if he's unranked and 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 Cerrone is that much better, then it's something almost of a tune-up in a way. But I don't think it will be in a tune-up in the end. I think it'll actually be a, a tough contest. I would still favor Cerrone, but I love it. I don't think there's anything wrong with it. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Big time looking forward to it. All the way, Edgar. I don't know what's going on with that. I, I, I guess they're going to move that off of MSG now and put that somewhere on the Detroit card or the end of the year. The other thing about those other two cards, going back to the previous question about the Detroit card and the end of the year card, I think they had planned for John Jones to be on one and Conor McGregor to be on the other. And now they're saying to themselves, well, what do we do now? Might as well just double up and triple up on this card and just sell a big one. And then, you know, rather than having a bunch of mediocre results, let's just have one really big one. I don't know. I don't know what they're going to to do Can the UFC survive solely as a TV product in certain markets hi Luke tough India was supposed to be a thing five years ago at the time they thought it could be a TV market since the MMA scene was non-existent things have changed considerably since then but do you think it's possible for a market to exist without a fighter in the UFC Yes, I do. Just there'll be a, always a limit on how big it can be. Some extra stuff in case you're interested in the market here. In hindsight, it's just as well because there was absolutely no MMA scene here whatsoever. Things have changed in the last five years, though. There have been more local shows, some golf-based promotions, putting on some very solid shows, some pro boxing, including a genuine superstar here called Virginder Singh. Uh, there was a considerable interest in UFC 200. Brock's a big deal because of WWE. Connor is now a relatively well-known name, and plenty of people watched UFC 202, UFC 205, and May Mac, though it wasn't on TV. UFC is slowly picking up since even the pay-per-view cards are on cable TV. The downside is that they start at 7.30 in the morning on a Sunday. Yeah, I mean, look, without some kind of regional presence to buoy it, it's not that it can be nothing. It just can't be uh, It can't be, can't be. be more than much. I mean, that's sort of the, it's the truth here about MLS, right? I mean, I don't watch MLS. I'll cheer for I, – I go, okay, that's not quite true. I go to a couple of, I go to a few DC United games every season. Um, and, you know, I want them to do well, but I don't really pay attention to it because the team is terrible and MLS soccer is boring to me. It's not very good. But the fact of the matter is, while Premier League or Bundesliga or La Liga or, you know, now even the French League is with PSG doing what they're doing, while those are just, you know, so much better and so much more interesting. I don't know that they would be as big if there wasn't some kind of domestic soccer presence here. You, you have to have it. You have to have some something here anchoring it. And, you know, that's not – it's not – I mean, the MLS is such a far cry from um, those leagues and the better teams in those leagues that I mentioned. But you get the idea. You, you need you – ha people have to have something to go to. People have to have something that has communal roots, and that can then lead to a greater appreciation for those other things. I think some of the success of Champions League games here and watching some of the bigger European clubs is because, in part, soccer fandom was developed through um, the growth and development of MLS. That's not entirely true. That's not true for everybody, but I think there's something to be said for that fact. So can it exist uh, UFC and MMA without some kind of domestic presence in India. Yeah, it can be something for sure. 
But to really make it something, to really go places, you're going to have to have a domestic scene with some big stars. And maybe Arjun Bular is that guy. Uh, I don't know that, you know, India is a complicated place with a lot of, you know, diverse backgrounds there. Um, but, you know, certainly the uh, people he represents, um, even if it's just the Sikhs, uh, is a significant population. Fighters are scared of each other. The frustrate, the most frustrating thing about listening to your content, okay, this ought to be fun, is whenever one of us makes a comment about a fighter being scared of the other, you mock us and make remarks saying that there's no way a cage fighter is scared of another human. An example is when we say fighter X is scared of fighter Y. Your response makes it seem like we're implying that if fighter X was in a restaurant and fighter Y walks in, fighter X would run out in fear. It almost feels like you use the word, they are cage fighters, they've been fighting since they were a kid, they aren't scared statement as a way to avoid our comment. Okay. Uh, it is obvious that there is fear involved in losing. True. Fighter X can be clearly scared of being humiliated in front of loved ones. True. Losing a title, of course, or a chance at big money. Yes. Or getting viciously KO'd and embarrassed. No doubt about it. Not all of them, but yes. Uh, uh, can have can also have a really high perceived chance of losing to fighter Y, which links fear to fighting fighter Y. Everyone understands what we mean when we say fighter X is scared of fighter Y. Not true. And no one is thinking that anyone who says this is implying that one fighter is just having nightmares about the other and hiding in their closet. 1,000% not true. I cannot tell you how many fight fans I have asked about this who legitimately think the way you're using scared is totally fine. Who could possibly argue with that, right? Absolutely no argument whatsoever. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. What I'm talking about are the people who say the opposite who actually do think there is a real kind of fear of physical confrontation. Uh, and I hear it all the time, not in the way you're talking about, which again is just fine. I'm talking about the other way. So we don't, we just don't want to come off as elitist assholes forming sentences such as Demetrius Johnson's perceived chances of losing to TJ Dolesaw are extremely high compared to that of Ray Borg. We want to talk like fight fans when talking about MMA and say Demetrius Johnson is scared of TJ Dolesaw. That's fine if you want to sort of use it in those contexts, but you got to understand, I, I talk to fans all the time, all the time, through email correspondence, at events, I know many, I hear it everywhere, and I have asked for clarification about what they mean by that, and it is not the clarification you are providing. If you are the kind of person who uses scared, like, uh, don't want to get embarrassed, or I got to make some smart choices about my career, I would lose to this person more easily than I would this one, or... Fine, that's no problem. That's not what I'm worried about. What I'm worried about are the people who use it the other way, and I'm trying to tamp, uh, tamp down uh, that notion. There's, every human being has fear for, for something. I've seen fighters afraid of heights. Like, yeah, these rational things you're talking about, I agree completely. But you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. You are saying, hey, every, me and everyone I know, we don't think that way. Well, trust me, that's great. You're around, you are smart, and you're around a bunch of great people. But I have come across a ton, a ton of fight fans who don't think that way, who do not think that way. They think legitimately, oh, you scared of physical confrontation? And I'm like, what are you talking about? You know? And it extends beyond that when people are questioning the toughness of Amanda Nunes when she pulled out of. Uh, when she pulled out of UFC 213, it sucked for everybody involved. 
But I saw people being like, wow, you're pulling out a sinusitis? That's a really weak cause. Do you really think that somebody who is this tough would pull out for a flimsy-ass reason given all the terrible things that could happen to them as a consequence? It's like you got to understand this is an insanely tough person who has fought with this condition previously. Now, she fought Ronda Rousey and Molly whopped her. Uh, and yes, they're, they're going to be a little bit risk-averse given the reasons about holding on to the belt. But it's not true that there are not a, a noticeable portion of fight fans who at least use those words who don't mean exactly the thing you're saying that they don't mean. They do mean it. And that's the one we have to correct. But yeah, if you want to say they've got a fear of being embarrassed or a fear of losing or a fear of um, you know being KO'd or something like that um, in public, yeah, of course, they all, have, they all admit to it. That's not what I'm talking about. John's, oh, here we go. I can't believe we haven't talked about this yet. John's B sample came back positive. Shocker. Can we just suspend him four years and be done with the boner era? I meant bones era, or did I? Okay. I got wrecked. I'm just pointing that out. Um, recommended. Turn green. Yeah, what do you want to say about that? Um, well, the B sample coming back negative, or I should say uh, positive, is not is not a particularly illuminating situation, right? Because it's still the same sample; they just divide it. So it would have to be some kind of chain of custody issue in the A sample for the B sample um, to be exonerating, and that is. It's happened before, but it is um, fairly unusual, if not very unusual, um, in part because the test collectors in this case have a protocol and are pretty strict about following it in terms of not compromising the samples collected and everything else. So if that had come back in the way that it had come back, uh, you know, with uh, John as have a negative B sample, that would have said that there was some kind of issue in the test collection or storage or something along those lines would have been uh, badly compromised and how you would have gotten to rent a ball in one of those scenarios or, you know, either because someone wasn't protecting the sample or the, the devices used to hold the sample would have been, you know, used in another case. I would, I mean, it would have to require something fairly dramatic. So coming back as the B sample as uh, the same doesn't really tell you a lot. I, fully expected it to come back that way. I mean, I was waiting to see, but but I've seen people being like, oh, that's it. Game over. He's done. Four-year suspension. Here we go. I would be very cautious about that. Um, I don't know what's going to happen because here's the problem. Even if he says he has a tainted supplement excuse and can provide sufficient evidence to uh, make a strong claim about that, I don't know that he can, but let's say he can. Um, you're still going to face the issue that in the first USADA case, you were cited, in John's case, John was cited for extraordinary recklessness. My hunch is that they would probably say, okay, look, maybe you weren't outright just popping steroids in your mouth because Terenabol is an oral steroid, right? And it goes to your liver and everything. Uh so maybe you weren't doing that, but at a bare minimum, you were still not taking requisite steps towards eliminating uh, risk. You still have risk management issues. And so for those reasons, you know, here's a two-year suspension. Like, 
I could easily see that. I, I find the four-year suspension unlikely. Uh, I just feel like John's John's attorney, Howard Jacobs, is a really smart guy. Someone has listed here the uh, Angel Heredia's um, uh, interview with Submission Radio. Shouts to the guys from Submission Radio who do a great job down in Australia. And that he thinks there's a lot of reasons to think it's a tainted supplement. I don't really know what the situation is. We really need a lot more evidence. And frankly, we don't even know what all of John's evidence is. We're merely hearing, and I know Heredia might be used as a... Um, a third-party validating witness, but I mean to say, whatever USADA does ultimately, and if there is an appeal and then some kind of a hearing, there's going to be documentation to this, and I want to see exactly what uh, Jones and his side argue, because we don't really have their side of the story here, at least not very much of it. We merely have what is public and what we know USADA can do, not what they want to do, not what what the precedent might be or, or something like that. So, um, Certainly the B sample coming back in the way that it does is not good news for Jones. But if I'm Jones or USADA, I don't think either side expected that to be different. I think, and if it was a tainted supplement, then of course the B sample would come back that way. Um, so I think that's what I'm looking at. They're probably going to say it's a tainted supplement excuse. The question is one, to what extent can they provide sufficient evidence to make that a plausible explanation? And two, even if they do, how does that comport with the previous problem, which was that they got chided for extraordinary recklessness? And to what extent does that impact any kind of potential sentence? Um, my guess is two years. That's my official guess, but it's just that. It's just, an, it's just a guess. I just think that, you know, saying, oh, well, the B sample came back. I don't, work here is done. Mm -mm. No, that again, it closes off one avenue but it doesn't, it doesn't fundamentally restructure what I think they were going to argue that whole time anyway. They were maybe looking for a break or something. So it says, Devil's Advocate, does testing positive twice really impact Jones's legacy? He is a great fighter because of fight IQ, wrestling skills, striking skills, and unique body type. He didn't win all those fights because he was 10% stronger than he otherwise would have been. Let me encourage you guys to go and read... Um, Ooh, can I find it? Uh, um, there was an interview. Did you guys see uh, Icarus, the uh, documentary? It's on Netflix right now. So this guy who was this, you know, uh, I would call him more than a hobbyist, but he was like a filmmaker and pretty good amateur racer. You know, this guy had done some serious races. Um had done one of these French races, I forget which one, uh, and you know these are these brutal things, and it was absolutely and he he did okay, but it was I mean, it tore him to pieces, and so he decided let me try this race again, but on PEDs, and let's see if we can skirt the system, and then in the in the process of this, he gets involved with this Russian guy who was essentially in charge of the Russian doping program to get around international testing, and it becomes a movie about something completely different in the end, but. Um, that guy was assisting this filmmaker and the cyclist with using performance enhancing drugs. And, uh, and in this, let me see if I can find it. Uh, I don't know if I can find it. In any case, you should go read it. Cause he talks about, I mean, this guy was on, on, on 
HGH. He was on EPO. He was on testosterone. He was on all kinds of stuff. And what he basically said was one of the things he was disappointed by was that he didn't feel like Superman on it. You know, not at all. But what, what he was surprised by was how much it aided in recovery. He was saying after he'd done this French race the first time, totally clean, that when the race was over, it took him three weeks before he even got back on a bike that he had just completely ripped his body to shreds. And that uh, when the second race was over, yes, they had some problems, a flat tire. Um, there was some miscommunication about what was supposed to be filmed and, and he had some other malfunctions. So it wasn't exactly, you know, apples to apples in that sense. But the race, we you know, we're talking like the least amount you climb in one day was 11,000 um, feet. Like some days you climb like 17,000. I mean, it's just you know, extraordinary amounts of um, distance you have to cover. He said by the end of it, he didn't feel all that bad because all of those drugs, and he was, and he was on quite the cocktail, understand that. All the drugs enabled him to uh, recover. So it wasn't like he walked around like, this it was just that he had this insane ability to just do the same thing the next day whereas everyone else was sort of very depleted now what that means in the fighting context we don't really know because none of the stuff's ever really been measured and we don't we haven't heard the full breadth of jones's defense yet so i guess we'll see i guess all i'm saying is the same thing i've been saying before which is that the way in which there the, the degree to which there's performance sensing drug use in mma nobody knows and b the extent to which it affects a fighter Certainly, you can imagine how that would be a difference in the training room. Um, so maybe that's the difference. I don't think it necessarily made like he made him ten percent stronger on fight night. I don't really buy that. I think what it does, if he used, and if this person's assessment of it, which I saw other experts talking about as the correct assessment, if that's the correct way, then his ability to learn and go back to the training environment and pick up stuff quickly and without too much injury issue and, um, you know, to just train longer and harder and get smarter. You could say you could attribute some of those ring smarts and the, the decision-making as yes, naturally he's quite good at it, but more than that, he had the ability to practice this more often, more repeatedly with more intensity over the course of time. So that by the time the fight comes around, he's not 10% stronger, but he had, um, a much more impactful, what do you want to call it? Rehearsal period. And that made the difference in the end. But that's assuming he's guilty, which we don't know. Uh, okay, it's 2.15, so let's go to the Twitter machine if we can. Uh, all right. I'm at L. Thomas News. <laughs> oh, I can't read you this. Um, I want L. Thomas News on Twitter, and you can use the hashtag chat rappers, and I will... Uh, read your tweet. Okay. Better fight. Covington versus RDA. Cerrone versus Perry. Lawler versus Perry. Ooh. Cerrone versus Perry. What's the one fight that never happened that you wish did? That's easy. Fedor versus Couture. Even if it was never booked, mine is Jones Silva. Fine one. But mine was Fedor Couture. Wait, did some fight fall through? I'm seeing something happening. Oh, here we go. Tiago Alves out of UFC Pittsburgh fight with Mike Perry. What the? F what has happened? Mike Perry needs a new opponent for UFC Pittsburgh. The rising welterweight was scheduled to meet a long time. Blah, blah, blah. 
Undisclosed reasons. God damn it. Ugh. All right, man. It, it, maybe I'm romanticizing the past. I don't remember fight cancellations ever happening like this before. What is going on? And people cut tremendous amount of weight back in the day. I don't understand this. I really don't get it. I, again, I don't know if it's a weight cutting issue, but you get the idea. Now that Maymac is over, what was the significance of the eight ounce gloves in your opinion? None. If anything, it helped to Mayweather. Um, let's see. Looking at UFC 218, is it safe to assume Holloway, Edgar, and Cyborg home or a Stipe fight will be in Detroit? Those are certainly your clubhouse leaders, yes. Aside from the main event on both the UFC and the boxing card, what fight are you looking forward to most this weekend? Oh, besides that, um, let's see. Let's see. I'll say, I don't even know who's on the Canelo, what you call it, card. But for this one, besides the main event, well, I was going to say Tiago. Oh, Gregor Gillespie's return, probably. Maybe Justin Ledette. He's got an amazing jab. Maybe that one. Let's see. Oh, are you kidding me? In other news, Jesse Taylor flagged by USADA, pulled from bout with Bilal. I mean, look, everyone's going to say that they love what USADA is doing to the sport. Oh, my God, we're going to get these guys, right? But the idea is that you deter future use. I would like to see evidence that that has happened. We, To this day, we have none. Guys keep getting flagged. Like, we had fewer adverse findings. That doesn't mean you have less people using. That just means you have less adverse findings, uh, number one. Number two, you're going to have to ask yourself whether or not this is good for an MMA. This is an entertainment sport. Right. This is an entertainment product. Uh, everyone, I know, I, I hear come, oh, I hate you, man. Everyone likes to say that it's good to clean up the sport. These guys are not hitting with the ball, blah, 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 blah. Again, number one, there's no real evidence that overall there's less brain trauma going on. No one has measured this at all, particularly as fights go longer. They actually might be getting more. Number two, um, It's fun to play cops and robbers in the news when everyone gets caught. Oh, my God, what a scandal. This is great for the media, blah, 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 blah. Everyone gets, oh, I knew it, I knew it. You get you get really socially excited to participate on message board threads and media likes to call and try to find scoops. It all seems kind of fun. And then reality sets in a little bit later that you don't have access to these guys anymore. And then you have to ask yourself, I mean, it was, it was, it was huge news when John Jones was flagged by USADA, and then it comes around that you now have to think about a calendar where you have to match make around him. Now, we'll see what happens. Maybe he gets some kind of full exoneration, but let's say he's gone just for the sake of argument for two years. Now you have two years we have to match make around him, and then it's not as fun anymore. Then it's not as fun anymore. Look, you can say what you want. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You said you're defending steroids, and this is the guy and the other. This is an entertainment product, and this is how, for a long time, this is how the sausage was made, both in terms of weight cutting, in terms of performing, in terms of everything. Part of what the golden age, as it were, of MMA was, was a function of probably fairly significant performance enhancing drug use, especially in Japan. Uh, and you take that away, and the product has to adjust. Now, you might say there is a righteousness of cause to do that, and it won't impact the quality. It will impact the quality. It already has. 
it already has. So uh, what the answer to that is, is maybe you say you keep going and then the quality will write itself eventually. Maybe that's one solution. Um, maybe the solution is um, you relax from the current standard just a little bit. Uh, I, I, you know, I have my own theories about it, but you need to understand that there is, I would argue, a pretty strong correlation at this point between the quality of product, not in totality, but in certain respects, and the introduction of USADA. And there's a, there's a direct correlation between the availability of talent and the introduction of USADA. And what you have to ask yourself is whether that is worth it and whether that is viable long-term and whether that is good for the sport. Because what you're probably going to say is, good or bad, it's necessary. It's a moral, it's a moral necessity. Uh, okay. You know, you can have your moral necessities, but if they bankrupt everything, I'm not sure how, you know, I guess virtue is his own reward in that case. Um, I believe it is totally unrealistic to expect these guys to perform at this level without some kind of aid, especially when you have the incentive structures in place to make them want to use. As long as sports are for-profit, performance-enhancing drug use will never go away. And so the best way to do it is to not have such a, zealot, a system of zealotry that catches, uh, or tries to catch anyway, uh, anything and everything in between, but rather sort of comes to grips with the incentive structure that has been created well before you thought it was ever around um, and tries to sort of minimize it in certain ways, but accommodate in others, at least in medically relevant scenarios, which is a conversation that we can't even have. So if you guys are super gung-ho about USADA, it makes for fun headlines on Monday. It makes for real sad products on Saturday. Oh, fuck. I can't believe that fight fell through. What type, if any, of defense do you think Jones could potentially try to build? Yeah, I think the tainted supplement defense, but the, the specifics of that, we're just going to have to wait. We're just going to have to wait. Uh, I just got my MSG tickets today. Can I crash on your couch the 3rd to the 5th? Yeah, except I don't live in New York City. So, no. I don't have a couch. Would you pay $1,000 for a phone? If that phone sound, found some kind of physical way to... Uh, If somehow the phone provided more than just visual sexual gratification, yes. Um, if DC moved to heavyweight, would you be interested in a Weidman-Gustafson fight? Sure. That'd be a great fight. If John Jones gets a long suspension, how would the UFC treat him when his career is over? With Silva as GOAT still? No. No. If he gets a two-year if he gets a one-year suspension, it might still be possible. Might, might, might. Even that's very debatable. But um, I think anything two or more and he'll be categorically eliminated, even though I don't know that that's relevant. Um, DC versus Jones overturned to no contest via ok Okamoto. Wow. Jesus Christ, what did I miss? Does DC get the belt back? What happens to gambling winnings? Fuck, are you... For, really? It got overturned? Man. Man. Hmm. I believe he gets the belt back. Yes. And the gambling winnings, I'm not sure. True or false? Connor doesn't lose in 2018. False. Ronda to fight again in 2018. False. 
Joanna, a two-weight world champion in 2018, also false. Would you agree that Justin Buckles is one of the most underappreciated coaches in MMA? No doubt about it. No doubt about it. Um, and a nice guy, too. You ever meet him in person? Very, very friendly. Like, legitimately like a very friendly human being. And I think he knows his guys. He's been with his guys. A, a very, very good coach, especially um, on fight night. Because you can be a good coach, like, as a trainer. And you can be a good coach as a strategist. But how good are you in the corner when you know your guy and you got to figure out what to tell them and what the how to solve the puzzle in real time? I think uh, Justin Buckles is it, it particularly excels in that way. And not enough hype for Perry Alves. Yeah, well, I mean, there is no Perry Alves anymore. Does the Gedalia versus Andrade fight save Shogun versus St. Prue 2 card? Yeah, that card is completely nubs. And I'm going to be on vacation for it, which means I don't have to worry about it. Someone says, nothing will happen to gambling winnings. Announcement on night of fight is final. Uh, okay. That said, there have been books who have returned money for PR reasons. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. Thank you, Mike Fagan. I just got a job with NASA in Hampton Roads. Any BJJ school recommendations in Norfolk or the Hampton Peninsula? I don't know of anything down there, to be honest. Um, there's a there's a, a lot of uh, uh, great wrestling schools down there as well. Well, as part of BJJ, BJJ but um, because obviously um, um, some of the universities down there excel in that, but I don't know any of the school off the top of my head. No, Alvis pulled out of the fight. God damn it! True or false? I agree that Tough Twenty Five was way more interesting than Tough Twenty Six. False. I mean, they're both equally whatever. If you had to guess, Connor versus Nate will happen when? First quarter, twenty eighteen. I thought maybe that December card, but thoughts on CR about Hatterazara in the UFC after the Holland card. Uh, I still have not watched his fight, so I won't comment, but uh, he seems like a good guy. And I'm glad to see him back. Um, thoughts on Angel Rodriguez implying that Jones's test itself may be invalid. Seems like an unlikely to be successful defense. Yeah, I'm going to guess that's not going to fly, but we'll see. terms of the center of the octagon, just ask Woodley about that. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the guy thrives off giving away the center of the octagon. Uh, fantasy fights. DJ versus Cody. Cody. Cruz versus Edgar. Ooh. Edgar. Aldo versus Habib. I'm just going to go with the bigger guy, probably. Habib, but that's a tougher one. Because, man, Aldo's takedown defense is phenomenal. Ferguson versus Woodley. Maybe Ferguson. Romero versus DC. Probably DC. What breed is your dog? Where is that dog? Uh, he is dog shelter mutt. Nunez has bean poles for arms. Props for Valentina superwomaning in and getting combos off close in. Yes. Who do you have as the winner of the Champions League? I mean, this is, I mean, you all know, Holland Madrid. Although, you know, Marco Asensio. <laughs> what a disgraceful way to miss a game. I mean, seriously. If GSP beats Michael Bisping and Anderson Silva beats Gastelum, do you believe the UFC books GSP versus Silva next? Unlikely, but possible. Someone says, uh, Josh Neighbors. 
says, want to come on my radio show and lament DC sports and maybe talk MMA? Yeah, just email me, LukeThomasNews at gmail.com, Josh. Okay, it is 2.30. I appreciate you guys watching very much. I cannot believe all the breaking news that I missed. I'm sorry if I kept you away from it. I'm gone for three weeks. Three weeks, y'all. So I know you're going to miss. I know you're going to miss this. You're going to miss me. Some of you more than others. Some of you a lot less than others. But uh, thank you so much for watching. It has been a very, very, uh, I sort of count my vacations as my years. So it's been a very, very kind of fun year. It's been a crazy, crazy year, both good and bad. And uh, I can't do it without you guys. I really appreciate you guys watching. Thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. Barbus thanks you as well. Um, so yeah, so stick around. We'll have some coverage of all the madness as soon as this is over. And um, thank you guys so much. Until next time, everybody, stay frosty.